hands and close your eyes. It's half past midnight, and you're listening to the Ghost Story Pass. Welcome to the Ghost Story, guys. I'm Brennan Store. I'm Paul Bestor. And this is the show where we talk about spooks, specters, and all the other things watching us from the shadows beyond the campfire. Some conversations only make sense after the sun has set, and this is most definitely one. Thanks for tuning in. This is episode number 166, and we're coming to you from that tiny mountain cabin you dream about, but can never quite reach. Paul, my friend, how you doing? I'm doing very well. I've got an achy thumb because I didn't realize there were so many businesses, celebrities, and influencers in the world that I did not wish to follow on threads today. <laughs> yes, I, I saw you have joined uh, Meta's new social media platform, Threads, and I, I'm sure you are loving it. It's doing all right. It's, uh, like I say, it's a bit... Uh, one bit, I was just being swamped by every sort of talentless TV celebrity that I've absolutely no interest in knowing anything about them whatsoever. And I was like, what is going on here? I think what happened is, I'm not totally sure, but I, th I think they rolled it out faster than they were going to because Twitter is in such a shit state right now. Is it? I know, I know. Yeah. I, I, I should have warned you that things are going well for Twitter. I know this comes as a shock. But with his track record... Turns out if he's not getting uh, government subsidies, he's not real good at running a business. Weird. Oh, that is weird. <laughs> I'm very surprised that he's decided to name it after uh, that heartwarming documentary about nuclear war in, in Sheffield. I guarantee you Mark Zuckerberg has never seen a movie ever. <laughs> I bet he watched The Social Network, or his lawyers did. Yeah, oh, I bet you his lawyers absolutely did. He was in his... Uh, on his rejuvenation sarcophagus and just kind of getting <laughs> updates over the intercom. But uh, yeah, I, I guarantee you his lawyer saw that film several times. Oh, well, I, di I did nearly go to Highgate on uh, on Sunday to go look for some vampires, but then I changed my mind. Oh yeah, because you were in town for the pulp show. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I thought, what better thing to do in London on a Sunday morning than, than go look for vampires? <laughs> but you didn't make it. No, we went to the British Library instead, and so I was looking at... Uh, books that made my eyes water as to how old they were. I saw the uh, oldest surviving version of the Bible, which was from 1214. Oh, wow. And some incredible works of art from, a, from you know, books from around the world. So, uh, you know, original uh, sketches and drawings by Michelangelo, and uh, there was uh, papers from Pepys's diaries, um, books written during the Great Fire of London, poems from the 15th century, books from Japan and China and India, just jaw-droppingly incredible. Oh, uh, these beautiful, beautiful items. And also a wonderful book about Spring-Hill Jack that was 140 years old. <laughs> that looked amazing. I love that shit, man. Well, as for me, I've been doing nothing so interesting. I, uh, although I did have a really, cool, uh, a really cool opportunity to hang out with uh, some of our listeners. Uh, our listener, Penny, and her husband, Cam, were in town from Delaware. And so I got to meet up with them for, uh, for a beer and some nachos. And it was really cool. Oh. Yeah. Had an opportunity recently over the last couple of months to meet up with a few different listeners. And it was just, uh, it, oh, it's always a blast, man. Uh, they went out to the, the Sticky Wicket pub and, <laughs> yeah, spent a couple hours just, just shooting the breeze. <laughs> Makes a change from it being called the Rose and Crown. <laughs> I think we used to have one of those over in a Squimalt, but it burned down, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> it's like when I went to the Epcot Center 
and they went in their English village. The pub there was called the Rose and Crown. I thought, God, and you can't even go like 4,000 miles away. That was my local growing up was called the Rose and Crown. We are nothing if not unoriginal. Yes. The last time I visited there, there was a mass brawl outside at five o'clock in the evening. It was done during half time as well, so I didn't miss any of the football watching the fight. It's English efficiency for you. <laughs> And uh, folks, if you happen to be passing through Victoria, uh, you know, and you want to meet up, shoot me a message, ghoststoryguys.gmail.com. If we can make it work schedule-wise, we absolutely will. Uh, same thing, if you happen to be passing through Sheffield, shoot us an email, and we'll see if we can't uh, arrange for you to meet up with, with fair Paul Bestel. And if you come to Paramete, <laughs> the beginning of September in rugby, you can meet us both. You can watch Paul give a presentation, and then uh, watch me make an ass of myself that night with a skin full of booze. <laughs> Watch us both make an ass of ourselves with a skin full of boom. Figure let you let you kind of throw your hat in the ring there, you know. <laughs> ah, three pints, I'll talk shit to anybody, me, mate. <laughs> oh, I cannot wait. As for today's show, we have another theme show, Paul. I, I'm really looking forward to this one. Uh, the show is going to be The Haunting of Toronto. And if you're thinking, what's a Toronto, folks? It is New York in about 70% of the TV shows you watch. So it's, uh, you know. <laughs> Toronto, of course, the, the great Canadian city, which I, I had only been to uh, recently in May for the uh, Andrew Piper signing event at Little Ghost Books. And when I was there, I picked up this book. I picked up several books on the recommendation of a, uh, a book critic I, I met there. And I just finished the last of those books. It was Red X by David Demchuk, and I love that book. It, it's a very, it's not a challenging read. It, it's, it's, it's violent and heartbreaking. It's a, mm. a supernatural serial killer story set in Toronto's gay village over the course of about 40 years. It's, it's creepy. It's thought-provoking. It's kind of meta, too, because uh, Demchuk sort of interweaves the story with essays about his life, living in Toronto, kind of, again, living through the AIDS epidemic what that did to the community. Really, really brilliant stuff. And again, it's, it's ultimately a ghost story. And it weaves in some real-life Toronto lore as well. And so once I finished it, I kind of wanted to keep that vibe going. And I thought, well, let's see what's going on in Toronto in terms of ghosts and the paranormal. And it has a rich history of haunting. And we have a bunch of great stories, and we're going to talk about some of that haunted history as well, because again, it's surprisingly dense. You know, I think... We don't talk a lot about Canadian cities on this show, and that's primarily just because the majority of our audience is American, you know? And, and also, mm -hmm. I think as Canadian cities, we, as Canadians, we do this thing, we're not real good at promoting ourselves. You know, that's, that's another <laughs> issue. And so you, you just don't know, right? I mean, obviously, Vancouver has some fairly well-known hauntings, but that's kind of it. And Montreal, of course, famously, famously haunted. We had actually a Montreal story on the last episode. Um, but yeah, we, you don't hear much about Canadian haunting generally, aside from my book, A Strange Little Place, available everywhere. Fine books are sold. So I thought it's, it's time to correct that. And so The Haunting of Toronto was born. So we're going to get to that, of course. But before we do, we have to thank our patrons. This one's for the patrons. Patrons, this is a Canadian show. So we got to say, you're like the maple syrup to our pancakes. Because without you, we wouldn't be nearly as sweet. And really, what would be the point? <laughs> For real though, guys, we cannot tell you how much we appreciate our patrons and our Apple Podcast subscribers. Without you guys, the show would not go. And so we would like to thank all our patrons and Apple Podcast subscribers 
but we would especially like to thank the latest ones. They are Paul Carnes, Stephanie Pearson, Tio, David Baker, Angelita Fuentes, and Amanda McIntyre Plus. Again, guys, thank you so, so much for your generous support. Every person who downloads the Ghost Story Guys helps make us who we are, but patrons are the ones who truly allow the show to continue. You help pay for our expenses, you help pay for my expenses, and without you, the show just wouldn't go. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. And if you'd like to join the team, head to patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. That's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys, where you get not only an ad-free feed, you also get access to all kinds of digital bonuses. And again, you can sign up at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys, or by subscribing to GSG Premium in your Apple Podcasts app. One last thing, shout out to our composer, Jerry Smith. Jerry Smith is a film journalist and musician from Central California. His latest project, Street Witch, is available now. You can find that by clicking the link in the show notes, searching for it on Spotify, or at streetwitch.bandcamp.com, except the W in which is two Vs. Again, that's streetwitch.bandcamp.com, or search for Street Witch everywhere you get your music. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back with The Haunting of Toronto. The Airbnb. Recently, my cousin Dave from Macon, Georgia, came up to Toronto to visit. Accompanying Dave was his girlfriend Alyssa, his mom Ellie, and another aunt, Bet. Dave and Alyssa rented themselves an Airbnb not far from our house, which is itself not far from Scarborough Town Centre in Toronto. This area is known for its small main floor and basement pre-war homes, little stone bungalows amid large sprawling parks and greenery. On their first night in town, Dave and Alyssa invited me, my brother, and another cousin over to hang out. While Dave and the other cousin were grabbing some supplies for the evening, Alyssa, my brother, and I were in the kitchen talking, when, from the corner of my eye, I saw, well, I saw a leg, kind of suspended in the air, like it was mid-step. My heart began to race, and just as I was about to alert the others, the overhead lights started flickering on and off. My brother, who was sensitive to energetic changes, chuckled nervously but said nothing. And since Alyssa had to stay there for the next few days, neither did I. The next morning, I brought them coffee and breakfast, and we all hung out for a couple hours. Despite it being a hot, bright, sunny day, the house felt cold and dark. It became so oppressive I couldn't stand to be there any longer and suggested we all go sit on the front porch, but Dave and Alyssa declined. As we sat there, my eyes kept darting to the hallway between the kitchen and bedrooms where I'd seen the apparition of the leg the night before. Nothing happened, but the atmosphere of darkness persisted. Again, because both of them had to stay there during their time in Toronto, I elected not to share my feelings. On the following day, their final day visiting, Dave and Alyssa had plans during the daytime, but in the evening came by to visit my boyfriend and I at our condo. When they arrived, they were both sullen and withdrawn, a huge change from their usual attitude. I asked them what was up, but they would only say that they were tired. After almost an hour of excruciating attempts at conversation, I suggested that maybe they should go crash out instead of forcing themselves to socialize. That's when Dave asked me if I'd noticed anything wrong with the house. I immediately knew what he meant, but pretended otherwise, asking him what was going on. 
He said that he hadn't liked the vibe of the place when they drove up. His girlfriend noted that the neighborhood was very quiet, with not a lot of people walking around. She specifically noted a lot of overgrown lawns, which creeped her out. They also said that the house was very dark and seemed angry. They told me they never fought in their relationship, but since arriving, they had bickered non-stop, leaving them more and more tired when they came to visit family. Alyssa said that on the previous night, she'd been having a hard time sleeping and found herself walking around the house in the dark for no apparent reason. They were extremely nervous to spend their final night in the home. My boyfriend and I told them they were more than welcome to spend the night with us and to leave from here home to Macon. They gratefully accepted, and after a quick trip back to their house, which was unnaturally still both inside and out to collect their belongings, we stayed up till 4 a.m. going through what we had experienced. Eventually, we concluded that whatever was there didn't like women, as Alyssa and I were the ones to experience the most. Alyssa, for her part, mentioned that as soon as they had arrived, the door code failed to work for her, multiple times, but the first time Dave tried, it opened. I also feel compelled to say I believe the fear Dave and Alyssa experienced was real. He works for law enforcement and she works in the medical field. Two occupations that entail high stress and life or death situations, often daily. To have them tell me they did not want to spend another night there made me feel the situation was extreme. I spoke to my brother yesterday who told me he felt something was lurking in the home and watching them from the walls. He said the reason he kept leaving early was because he felt something didn't want him there. Patrons may recognize that story from Book of the Dead, Volume 53, and that's because a, a version of it appeared there. This is uh, a little more streamlined, but it, it is essentially the same story. And I, I got to tell you, Paul, I was reading recently that Airbnb is struggling, and you know, I don't really feel sad for them. Yeah, it's happening here as well. They've got greedy. Absolutely. And they always push it off on the hosts. Oh, it's the hosts doing it. Yeah, but you, you facilitate the entire transaction. So let's try not to absolve ourselves of guilt just so quickly. The, the thing that gets me is in this story, this woman was complaining that the neighborhood is empty. That's because all those houses are fucking Airbnbs. <laughs> That's happened here. There are neighborhoods where a startling number of the houses are Airbnbs. So there's no sense of community because there's no one permanently in any of the houses. Oh, we can't figure out why street crime is up. It's because there's no eyes on the street anymore, man. That's why. <laughs> this is not complicated. No. No, it's not. I know when, when they had Eurovision in Liverpool the other month, there were some real problems where people had booked it straight away, and obviously some hosts weren't aware of what was happening. And I think one guy had booked three days for like 400 quid, and he was all right. And then he got an email saying, uh, oh, we're going to have to cancel your booking because um, it, it's now two grand. Oh my God. And so there were just loads of people were being pulled off Airbnb. They were kicking loads of venues off because they were just ramping it up. I mean, same thing happens at minute in Wimbledon with the tennis. People rent the house out for a fortnight for like 10 grand. Yeah. The thing is like for me, if, if you want to rent out your primary residence and you're going to go stay with a friend or something, fine. But if you're buying up properties, which would ordinarily be homes for people and families who are going to establish their lives, feed into the local community and you turn those into Airbnbs, that's when the whole thing breaks down. Because again, I mean, it's, it's murdered the rental markets in a lot of cities. And the ghosts are, are the least of it. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, this place deserves to be haunted. <laughs> but it's a very similar thing to, to what's happened in certain parts of the UK. There are areas of Wales and Cornwall, especially, where 
the locals have been completely priced out of the market because people are just buying second homes there and they use them for five weeks. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. I was just reading an article uh, in, how was it the Globe and Mail, Toronto Globe and Mail? They were saying that of all the new builds happening in Canada, the vast majority of them are being bought by multimillionaires and billionaires adding to real estate portfolios. And which are just pushing price. I know, I know this is this is a ghost show. I know, folks, this is not the property show. So we'll be we'll we'll, we'll, we'll be quick. But uh, it's crazy. Like the the places next to us, they just built these condos. They are renting for thirty eight hundred dollars a month for a two bedroom. That is almost four times what we pay for a two bedroom. I don't know who the fuck can afford these things. We were laughing in London. We looked because I always like to look in the estate agents in London, and because I find it hilarious. There was a there was a flat for rent and it was three thousand two hundred pounds a month. Oof. Even before you've bought anything else, your rent is gonna be thirty eight grand a year. I've never made that much money in a year in my life. Well it it makes you wonder because that means you would have to earn at least a hundred and fifty grand a year to be able to live yeah. in, in a <laughs> property. <laughs> yeah. Even the drug dealers I know can't afford these prices. <laughs> <laughs> they'll have to move into Bitcoin. <laughs> oh, maybe they'll sink with the ship. <laughs> Actually, this, th- that ship has already sunk. Maybe we can send them down there in a sub. <laughs> Don't you shake your head at me, Bestel. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why I don't get invited anywhere, Paul. I just say shit. <laughs> yeah, I do, but I just make sure it's it's not recorded. Yeah, see, I'm not that clever. <laughs> the lure. My family didn't have much money when we were kids, so to make ends meet, my parents and Uncle Benny, who live with us, took on extra jobs. One particular job happened to be as a night cleaning crew at the Keg Restaurant on Airport Road in the city of Toronto. My parents couldn't afford a babysitter, so we'd often tag along just to sleep in the restaurant or car. Like I said, we were poor. Even though the job paid well, and it wasn't exactly back-breaking labour, my parents still eventually quit because of the supernatural and strange phenomena that occurred while working there. I'll start with the first and most important paranormal story that happened to me and my uncle's then-girlfriend Maria. At the time, I was 11. It was around 3.30am and the restaurant was fully lit. In the distance, you could hear my father and uncle talking about a recent soccer match. Maria and I were sitting at a table near the bar, talking and trying to pass the time. At some point, like most nights, we both nodded off. Usually... What would happen is that we would be then woken up by one of my parents when it was time to go. Well, this particular night didn't quite go to plan. As I said, Maria and I had nodded off beside each other until we were woken by my Uncle Benny. Benny, who was and remains a happy-go-lucky guy, shook us both pretty hard and told us to wake up and then follow him to the basement. He said he needed help moving something out of the way and it was urgent and it involved my mother. Maria and I quickly jumped up, gathered our things and started to make our way to the basement. In the few moments it took for us to gather our things, my uncle had moved a good 20 feet away from us and was urging us to follow him, reminding us that this was an emergency. A moment later and we'd lost sight of him. We started to frantically look around the restaurant but couldn't find him and that's when the night took a turn. 
As we were looking for my uncle, we turned a corner and bumped into him. When he saw us, a look of shock came over his face. Almost out of breath with fear, we asked Benny, Hey, what's the emergency? Stuttering briefly, he responded with, You two. Your dad yelled to me that you two were trapped in the basement and he couldn't open the door. He told me to go to the car and get a crowbar to pry it open. It was like the world had shifted sharply to the right. Maria told Benny we were looking for him because he'd woken us up, saying my mother was having an emergency in the basement. He said that was impossible because he and my father were walking past the basement door when he heard us calling for help. It was at this point that my father came to where we were, loaded with heavy objects he planned to use in knocking the door down. Seeing us clearly not stuck in the basement, he started scolding us, telling us it's not funny to scare somebody like that, and asking how we got out. We explained to him that it was my uncle who had woken us up and told him to follow him to the basement, that we were then following him when we lost track of him, only to bump into him and recap everything up to this point. The four of us were standing in the restaurant looking puzzled, trying to figure out what was going on, and just as we were about to continue with the work, my mother, who was on the other side of the restaurant, came running towards us saying someone was trapped in the basement. They needed help, but she couldn't open the door. There are no words I can use to describe the look on our faces other than pure terror. Something was trying to separate us. After a few minutes of shock, we finally collected ourselves and decided it was best if we all stayed in the same room for the rest of the night. Fair to say my parents did a half-assed job and got out there as quickly as possible. So I gotta tell you, Paul, it's been a while since a, a story has really grabbed me the way that one did, mm. but that one, that one genuinely creeped me out. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's very odd to have three different sets of people who all experience different things that seems to be all trying to force them into the same area. Weird. Yeah, and it, it just begs that question, what happens when if you, if you go? What you is know, in the like basement? That, well, that, that's it, right? It's, it's like that night my friend and I were in the desert and the GPS kept telling us to drive off into this dirt track into the dark. Of course, we weren't dumb enough to do that, but you do wonder what would have happened if you had. Mm. And, you know, you just get somewhere and nothing happens and you're fine, or do you not come home? Are you another statistic or a, a mysterious episode of Unsolved Mysteries? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I was doing a little bit of a reading and there is a famously haunted keg restaurant in Toronto. This is actually not that one, mm. but I thought I'd bring this up because again, when you look up, you know, haunted Toronto, the, the keg at the, uh, the former Massey mansion is so the keg mansion now is always the one that comes up. And weirdly the keg in Vancouver is also famously haunted, which kind of makes you wonder what it is about the keg that attracts the dead, you know, like they really like their Caesars or something. I'm, I'm not entirely sure, but Regardless, also Caesars, is that a UK thing? Do you guys have those? Not up here. They may be in, in cities with electricity and things, but we don't have them in the uh, un, uh, unwarranted <laughs> north of, of England. I certainly don't have one in Sheffield that I'm aware of. My abs, some, somewhere else. But Oh, no, no, sorry, the, the drink Caesars. Oh, no, we don't have that either. Oh, really? Oh, okay. I wondered why I didn't register at all when I said Caesars. Okay, yeah, Caesars is, um, it's like a Bloody Mary, but with Clamato juice instead of tomato juice. With what? Uh, Clamato juice? The, so you guys don't have Clamato juice either. The hell is that? It's tomato juice and clams. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have that. No. Really? 
God. I mean, I like clams and I like tomatoes, but I won't want them together. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's tomato juice concentrate and sp- spices and and clam broth. Oh, I need a I need a wash. <laughs> so you you were we were talking about shitty beer um, <laughs> on the patron record. I know guys. My mom's uh, one, at least one of my mom's old friends. He would come to the house to party with a case of beer and a couple things of clamato juice, and he would mix the beer and the clamato together and drink that all night. Okay, now is he single? <laughs> he wasn't. He'll married for a long time. I bet her nose didn't work. <laughs> oh God! I tell you, it feels like there's a ghost in here now. I've got all cold. Just the very thought oh. of that on my palate is akin to a paranormal experience. Haunted by flavor, the Paul Bessel story. <laughs> Haunted by food poisoning, no doubt. <laughs> you know. Getting back to the Keg Mansion. Um, so, like I said, the, the Keg Mansion in Toronto uh, was formerly the Massey Mansion. And, uh, again, famously haunted. But there, there's a story that I wanted to share, Paul, because I, I, I think it's... I think you'll appreciate this. <laughs> as, as, a, as a historian, I think you'll appreciate this. So, the, the mansion was built in 1867 for the McMaster family, and then it was purchased by the Masseys in 1880. And one of the ghosts who's said to be in this house is the maid of Lillian Massey. Now, the story goes that basically the maid was downstairs as Lillian was dying in her bed. And when the doctor finally said she's gone, the story goes that the maid walked up the stairs into the main hall and hung herself. Now, that's obviously, that's that's horrifying. But of course, everyone says, well, why, why would the maid do that? Why would the maid kill herself when her, her employer dies. Most people say, oh, it was grief because she, she loved her employer so much. She loved her boss. She was such a great boss. Or they believe that maybe the maid was having a secret affair with one of the Massey men and somehow Lillian's death would force all that to be revealed. So rather than the hidden shame of this, facing the shame, she just killed herself. And in classic historian fashion, they have missed the most obvious fucking answer, which is that these two people were in love. Surely nobody was gay before 1960 in the world. This is this. this no, no, it's a, it's a new thing we invented. Oh, yeah, thank yeah, goodness. Yeah. It's like these that old joke about yeah, two women. Like, they lived together for 45 years. They shared a bedroom. They were great friends. Come on, guys. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> yeah, J. Edgar Hoover and Clyde Tolson were super good buddies. Yes, Liberace. Super good buddies. Yeah, yeah, Liberace, real ladies man, but he had a lot of good guy friends. <laughs> J- just before we go out, um, did I ever tell you the story about getting hit on by a, a, a steak chef from the keg? No. no. So, <laughs> about 15 years ago, I was at a wedding. My buddy was getting married. My buddy was, um, he was a cop, uh, so most everyone at the wedding was cops, but he had also, he'd met his wife when he was a waiter at the keg, so obviously before becoming a cop. So, half the wedding party was cops. And the other half was folks from the keg. And at one point I was sitting at the table and this, this young gal, probably about my age, you know, at the time I was in my mid twenties, this young gal, you know, we're doing the thing and what do you do? Oh, what do you do? And she looks at me and she says, I cook steak at the keg. Does that do it for you? <laughs> what? And I, I kind of laughed. Huh? Oh, that's, that's funny. <laughs> and then later on the dance floor. Again, I was with Nikki at this point. I think I was actually engaged at this point. But I'm dumb, Paul. For me to figure out someone is flirting with me, they would have to sit in my lap, look directly in my eyes, 
and say, I am flirting with you. Like it would, it would take that. I am so fucking dumb. So I'm on the dance floor, you know, we're all having a good time, whooping it up, whatever. And this woman, you know, starts dancing with me. I'm like, all right, fine, whatever. You know, it's no crime to dance with someone. I, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an adult. And then she started grinding on my knee. <laughs> I didn't know what to do. I was like a little kid lost at the mall. I need an adult. I need an adult. <laughs> no idea. Like, okay, I figured it out then. So I guess you either have to sit in my lap and tell me or grind on my knee on a dance floor. Mm. And I just, I kind of seized up and eventually, um, I don't know if she figured out this isn't working, but she kept trying. And finally the bride came over. She saw it and bless her. She came over and all I saw was her going, which I think was her saying, oh, that man's a moron. So you are wasting your time, but also presumably he's engaged. It could have been worse. I mean, it wasn't bad, but I would love to know how it could be worse. She could have shown you her knives. Okay. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, I wouldn't put it past young Brent to end up in a situation where knives came out on a date, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember once meeting a lovely girl. She was brilliant until she uh, started pulling a crack pipe. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Do you want some? No, thanks. It's a bit Moorish. <laughs> I, I, just, I just had some. I'm, I'm, all, I'm crackful. Not on a Thursday, no, love. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I, oh, he's, he's going to hear this, so I'm going to be very circumspect. You know who you are. You've told me this story. Um, he, he listens to the show, but I, a friend of mine was, yeah, he was, he was getting intimate with someone and she, her nose started bleeding and he was like, oh, well that's fine. And the, the first thing she did is she clapped, clapped her nose over her hand over her nose and said, I'm not a cokehead. So you are then. <laughs> oh, Paul, we've gone way far from ghosts. This is going to be an interesting <laughs> show. Already it's an interesting show. Yeah, the ghost of someone's nose. <laughs> the Bachelorette Party. In August 2011, one of my friends booked a room at the Delta Chelsea Hotel in Toronto for a bachelorette party. There was about 10 to 12 of us that went to the party. My friend Maria was the one who planned the bachelorette party, but the Chelsea wasn't her first choice. Another friend and party attendee, Vina, insisted upon it. In fact, insisted upon the particular room we had booked, which seemed weird, but Maria rolled with it as it was actually cheaper than the place she was considering. We later found out why Vina wanted Maria to book this particular hotel. We'll get there. I got to the hotel and called the elevator. It was shortly after stepping off the elevator on their floor, the 19th, that everything changed. I suddenly had a heavy feeling, and as I approached the room, I began to feel so dizzy, I thought I was going to pass out. At the same time, I felt like I was bleeding out from a body part. It seriously felt like I was experiencing someone else's death. By the time I got to the room, I was sweating like crazy my arms feeling heavy to the point that it felt like they were going to pop out of my sockets. One look at me and the friend that opened the door asked me what the hell was wrong because I looked like I'd run a marathon. Once I'd settled down a bit, I told them what I experienced walking down the hall. Some of the friends looked surprised, but Maria and Vina knew I had a sensitivity to the other side and took it calmly. In room 1902, I started feeling another set of emotions coming from the bedroom. I felt anger, fear, and the smell of murder, among other things. I did what I could to brush the feelings off and enjoy the party. Shortly thereafter, the bride was dropped off, the drinking started, and our male stripper arrived, dressed as a cop. Yummy. To be clear, that is, in the story, that is not me editorializing. After the stripper show, we decided to go to a Mexican restaurant for dinner. We had a great time, and I nearly forgot about the feelings I'd gone through. 
As we were waiting for dessert, Vina brought up the subject of the paranormal. She said she had heard of my sensitivities before, but never believed them, and asked what I thought of the room. Pissed off at her rudeness, I repeated what I felt upon entering the 19th floor, and she looked surprised. She said she had convinced Maria to book to Chelsea, and that room particularly, because someone had been murdered there. She thought she would catch me out if I spent a night there, and didn't mention anything. One of the other friends asked if Vina and I were playing a joke on them. Mind you, at this point, I didn't know if there actually had been a murder at the hotel or not. It's not something you typically look up before you go to a hotel. And I didn't know if Vina was pulling my leg, but I swore to the friend that I, at least, was on the level. I couldn't speak for anyone else. Since it was getting late, we decided to go back to the hotel to get ready to go clubbing. Although I didn't want to go back there, I didn't have much choice because my stuff was there. Plus, it took a lot of convincing for my parents to let me stay overnight, so I was going to pass up the opportunity. That's a mistake I realized the next day. Going back to the hotel, I felt the same emotions I felt coming and going the first two times, the strongest emotions being in the bedroom. I felt the sorrow and fear from a woman, and the anger from a guy. I just didn't like it in the room, so I quickly changed and put on my makeup in the bathroom. We went clubbing and had so much fun that I totally forgot about the hotel incident for a couple hours. Throughout the night, our friends slowly started to drift home until it was just the bride, Maria, Vina, another friend, and I. About 2.30, we went back to the hotel where everything felt just as bad as it had before. It didn't make it any easier with Vina joking about what I was going through, although nobody else was laughing. With everyone being pretty drunk, we fell asleep quickly. I'm not sure what time it was exactly because I couldn't see the alarm clock on the nightstand and my phone was on the charger in the main seating area, but I woke with a start. Imagine being underwater too long and suddenly coming up for air. That's when it started. I couldn't move my body, and it felt like someone was sitting on my chest, choking me. Somehow, it felt like this person was going to kill me with a sharp object. I couldn't move my arms or legs or fight whoever it was off of me. By the weight, it felt like it was a man. I felt like I was losing consciousness from not breathing, and at the same time, it felt like a ringing in my ears. When I tried to focus, that ringing sounded like a woman crying or screaming no. I don't know how long it went on like this, but all of a sudden I was shaken awake by my friend. I shot up off the floor like my butt was on fire, and I don't know if it was my scream or my friend's scream, but it woke up everyone else. I lied and said I'd had a nightmare, and they all went back to sleep save for the friend who had woken me. Then I went into the bathroom and threw up. When I came back out to the seating area, my friend was waiting for me and I asked how she'd known to wake me. She explained that she had dreamed of a lady who asked her to help me by waking me up. She said she felt peace from the lady, but she was persistent about her helping me, and that is when she woke up to find me with my eyes open, struggling to breathe, but not moving my body. She described the woman from her dream as elderly, with totally white hair to her waist, wearing a lime green sari with a white top. I was in shock because she had described my maternal grandmother to a T. The green sari was what she was cremated in. The funny thing about the situation was that when I felt the pressure on me, I couldn't think of one Hindu prayer I learned as a child, so I started concentrating on my grandmother. I guess she came through. So I, I looked this one up, Paul, and apparently there was actually, I don't know if it was in that room, but there was a uh, double murder-suicide at the Delta Chelsea Hotel in 2006. 
Had you heard anything about this? No, I haven't. I'm not aware of... That hotel is completely new to me. I know of a haunted hotel in Toronto, but it's not that one. It's got got one of those interesting ghosts. It's supposed to be a grey-haired man who wanders around the eighth floor, I think, smoking? Oh, interesting. Oh, what's it called? The Fairmont? That rings a bell. Fairmont... Royal or something? There's, that, that's the only haunted hotel in Toronto I'm aware of. So anything else that's a bit strange, I, I wouldn't have known, no. Okay, yeah, so it's a Chelsea Hotel. Uh, it's apparently the largest hotel in Canada, which I didn't realize. It's got uh, 1,590 rooms and three restaurants. In 2006, there was a, a couple and a, a, a friend of theirs on this package tour with a, with a group, basically. As I understand it from my kind of cursory reading, and I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes, folks. But... The couple was sharing a room with this guy, and the guy fancied the girl who was attached. And the couple started going at it, I guess they thought quietly, well, this poor fucker was sleeping on the floor, which just as, a, as an etiquette thing, don't, don't do that. That's weird. Not that, again, that, that does not merit what happened next, to be clear, because what happened next was wrong. But just as a general etiquette thing, don't, don't bone while your friends are in the room, unless that's all a thing you've agreed upon, in which go with God, have fun. But, uh, and that was not the case here because he heard, again, he had a thing for the woman and he killed both of them. And then he stabbed himself. I, they think he may have been trying to make it look like, uh, but he bled out before he could call help. It was a whole thing. So again, I don't know if that was floor 19 or not. And if it was this particular room, but it's, it's a horrifying story. I prefer my story that I knew. Yes. It's much nicer. (laughs) Although that is not the most fucked up story attached to that hotel. If you can believe it. No. Because in, in 2012, a housekeeper, I believe her name was, I got to hear, her name was Nagisti Semret, who was working as, I think, maybe a supervising mm-hmm. housekeeper at the mm-hmm. hotel. She was followed home by a stalker, and she was killed uh, just outside her home in the part of Toronto uh, known as Cabbage Town. And um, the guy who did it was eventually sentenced to prison. However, before that happened, he also killed his former roommate to hide the crime. He was tried for both murders, thankfully, and I'm not even going to say his name because fuck that guy. But um, he will hopefully die in prison. But he actually dismembered the roommate and tried to remove her from the premises. Yeah, it was gnarly shit, man. So again, uh, not to discourage anyone from staying at the Chelsea Hotel because I'm sure it's fine, but it's got a a tragic history. It's like that. What they call they call that guy that did the show about him. And he was part of a really rich family in New York. And he, he died. Oh, the jinx? The jinx, that's it. When he was arrested the first time, that's what he'd done to his neighbour, hadn't he? he? He chopped him up and put him in bin bags and that's how they went back to him. And he said that was self-defence and he got off with it, didn't he? <laughs> oh, yeah. I can't remember that guy's name. But yeah, that was the one where in the documentary, they catch him because his mic is still hot when he goes to the bathroom. And he says, well, they figured you out. You're cooked or something like that. Talking to himself, not realizing he's still being recorded. Yep. Yep. Durst. Yeah, yeah. He died in prison during the pandemic. Did he? I yeah. didn't realize. He was, he was sentenced at the beginning and I think he passed. I think he caught COVID in prison and died. I'm going to say it, Paul. Not a loss. No. Uh, you mentioned the Fairmont. I mean, the Fairmont um, are a, a well-known chain of hotels here. Because they used to be the old CPR hotels, so they were the, basically the big stop where the trains would stop. So they were the, the grandest hotels at the time, wherever they happened to be. Uh, and I know like the Fairmont Empress in downtown Victoria, that is, you know, for a long time, that was our grandest hotel. 
there's a Fairmont Vancouver, uh, the Fairmont, um, I think the Fairmont Banff, actually, yeah, the, I believe it's a Fairmont and Banff is fa- also famously haunted. Uh, just a grand old hotel, schlocked full of ghosts, from what I understand. The Fairmont, other than the marvellous old-fashioned grey-haired man in a smoking jacket wandering around, I know it's one of those where it's, they've got ghostly footsteps, but there's also screaming heard and people hear their names being called and when they turn around, there's nobody there. Oh, wow, so it's not just the old man. There's yeah, a whole load of shit. All on different floors and certain stairwells. So, yeah. Oh, fascinating. <laughs> I mean, that sounds better than what this person experienced, I got to say. Although, I don't know what's worse, the nocturnal attack or having to hang out with these people, because it, with friends like these, man. <laughs> Serendipity. I moved into the place I live about seven months ago, and my roommate has a cool little book collection sitting in the living room. One day I decided randomly I wanted to read one of them. Its cover rather appealed to me, though I'm not sure why. I grabbed it, put it on my dresser, and forgot about it. Fast forward a month or so. I live on the outskirts of Toronto. The city I live in has a population of just under a million people and is about a 20-minute train ride out of the city. I recently got a new job in Toronto, and my commute involves a train ride followed by an 8-kilometre longboard trip. On that longboard trip, I ride the length of a street called Roncesvalles. This Wednesday I had work, and I realised my 20-minute train ride is a great opportunity to read. I took a look at the four or five books I have on my dresser, and see Me and Death, the book I had borrowed from my roomie. Perfect! I packed it in my bag and headed out for the train. Upon settling in the train, I took out the book and opened to the first chapter, which reads, I was walking up Roncesvalles the big street in my neighbourhood. A chill went up my spine and the hairs on my neck stood up. Okay, cool, I told myself. It's just a coincidence. I read a few chapters and in them the author mentioned fruit markets and bakeries that are still there. My train ride ended and I began my trek to work, riding up, Ron says Vale, seeing the places he mentioned in the book. And a name, Tazas. My work has five or six tills open during busy times, and when a till finishes with a customer, they leave and the next available customer goes to them. So this particular day I finished with my customer and called for the next person. My work involves a membership, so the customer handed me his ID, and as I'm typing his name into the computer, I see his middle name, Tadurts. It was at this point I nearly lost my marbles. I explained to him about the book and how I commute the same way the book mentions and talks about a gangster by the name of Tadduts. He explains that it's a very uncommon name, his grandfather's name, and his grandfather is from that neighbourhood, which is a predominantly Polish neighbourhood. This happened a few days ago, and thinking about it still gives me this weird yet tangible feeling. And I don't know that that one's paranormal exactly, but I just kind of liked... I just kind of liked it, so I thought, fuck it, let's, let's include it. Mm. Well, it's, it's always odd when you're reading a book that you've no idea what it's about, and then you suddenly realize it's telling you about what you're doing. Yep. I, I, have you had this experience? I've never had anything like that. I've had deja vu a couple of times, but I've never had anything that strange. I mean, there was a very odd incident. Um, about five years ago, I went to see Richard, who lives in Bournemouth, and we went out for dinner on the first night there. So I'm on the south coast of England. And uh, we went to a very nice restaurant, had some very posh fish and chips, lovely, and uh, and a couple of beverages. And the bill came in a book. It was one of those hip restaurants where they give you a bill in a strange thing. 
And so the book I got was a book all about Chatsworth Hall, which is about 15 miles from where I live. Oh. And it struck me as just being a very odd thing because Chatsworth is in Derbyshire. And if you asked people to describe a Derbyshire accent, I doubt many people would be able to tell you it's quite similar to a Yorkshire one, but it's not exactly the same. They tend to end sentences with the word duck. Okay. You're right, duck. And so to go to Bournemouth and come across that just randomly in a in a restaurant I'd never set foot in in my entire life, and I doubt they knew we'd not mentioned it, we'd not said anything, it just came. And I just that struck me. And it's one of those strange things where something really odd happens in somewhere where you, you, nobody knows who you are or what you are. Yeah, I, I know sometimes I'll talk about this with Rachel. She, she'll have things like this and she'll tell me about them. And we always joke. I don't even know if this is a joke necessarily because I think this is sort of one of those things people believe that when, you, when those things happen regularly, you're kind of on the path. You know, it, it feels like if you see a lot of like synchronicity kind of things, you know, keep going because you're doing the right thing. And I mean, I'm a little torn between that. And I think there's a little bit of that kind of dirt gently detective, uh, pardon me, holistic detective agency thing where you read a little too much into coincidences. Mm-hmm. But I, I, I don't know. The same reason I, I kept the story is because there's something that just feels, I don't know, right and affirming yeah. about them. Yeah. It's actually just reminded me while I was thinking there. I've just remembered another one, which is a prime example oh. of reading too much into a coincidence. Oh, okay. So at the beginning of June 2010, we'd gone for a walk in the plague village of Eam, also in Derbyshire. And uh, and there's a little walk you can do, which is like 10 miles, and you basically walk past a bench called Five Counties Bench. So if you sit on this bench, you can see into Yorkshire, Cheshire, Derbyshire, Nottinghamshire, and Manchester. So you can see five counties from this one particular bench. It's amazing, beautiful. And we'd parked in Eam and we'd done it all around and then we sort of headed back down. And as we were coming down, we were next to this very busy road, these beautiful old houses. And we're with the dogs. And all of a sudden, this beautiful border terrier just comes belting out the yard into the road and there's traffic everywhere. And I'm like, shit, shit. You know, this little dog's going to get killed. So I had to give the dog to my partner at the time. I said, right, because she'd got a dog, I'd got a dog. And we've got this little terrier dashing about in between like running to road running back i was like chuffing i'm not we're gonna watch a dog die here today so i gave her the dog so i managed to get and as i bent down picked this dog up as i stood up this car just went and i thought you know this is great this is just what you want to do on a Friday afternoon so so i'm like jesus and obviously this dog had come out of this house so got this little dog in my arms and i knocked on the door and i said excuse me I believe this is your dog. And he's like, oh my God. And this dog had apparently got out the second floor window, like slid down a a roof onto the garage and then jumped off the garage to get out the the yard. (laughs) And I got it. But anyway, this dog was called Pickle. And it was beautiful, lovely little dog. And it was kissing me all the way while I was taking it there. And so I was then convinced that this, Brennan, was a sign. Because... In 1966, when England held the World Cup football, the World Cup trophy was stolen. Somebody nicked it. Can you believe it? Because obviously, displaying it in a shop window without a fucking alarm is a really sensible thing to do for the most expensive football prize in the world. And, um, and so some, some scoundrel stole it. And there was a nationwide hunt, newspapers, a big reward and everything. And it was found by a dog uh, <laughs> called Pickles who was on a walk with his dad and he found it stuffed under a hedge wrapped in newspaper. So I was therefore convinced that because I'd saved a dog called Pickle's Life, 
two weeks before the 2010 World Cup was happening, that it was a sign that England were definitely going to win it. And you know what, Brennan? What's that? England were fucking dreadful, that World Cup. <laughs> and, we, and we got absolutely hammered by Germany 4-1 in the second round. And if you hadn't saved that dog, they would have won. <laughs> One game, the highlight was a fucking eagle landed on the post. That was the most interesting thing that happened for two hours. You see, that eagle was going to grab that dog. And <laughs> then <laughs> butterfly effect, butterfly effect, England takes the cup. Honestly, I'd have had more fun pouring bleach in my eyes for two hours. <laughs> Passing by. This happened when I was 15. And let me say first off, I know you won't believe me. And that's fair, because sometimes I have a hard time believing it myself. At the time, I was living in Toronto with my parents, and we had gone out for a walk. We had only recently moved to the city from a small town, so I was more or less just gawking at all the giant buildings surrounding us. At some point, I looked through the crowd ahead of me and saw a man staring at me in what looked like shock and amazement. In an instant, some unknowable instinct told me I was looking at myself. We walked past each other, staring, and with each passing second, I was more and more certain of the feeling. This man was me. Well, older me. It was like my mouth stopped working and I couldn't speak. I could only stare and wonder. Then we passed out of sight of each other, and I was just left with questions. My parents, for their part, seemed unaware of what I just experienced. You know where this is going. Ten years later, and I was 25, living on my own in that great big city. I can't remember why I was out, whether I was coming back from a fitness class or going to meet with some friends, but I was walking down Dundas, dodging slow walkers, when I saw him. Well, me. Younger me. Fifteen years old, standing where I had stood ten years before, with my parents. All I could do was lock eyes with the younger man, our shock clearly mutual. What am I saying? Of course it was mutual. I still remember how it felt. I wanted to tell myself something, but I, I couldn't break my stride. Couldn't say anything. For a brief moment, it was like I was merely a passenger in my own body. I could not make contact. But I wanted to. My parents died in the years between those two moments, and I wanted to say something to them, even if just in passing. But my body kept moving, my head straight, only my eyes able to turn and see. All I could do was open my eyes wide and watch as I passed by. And Paul, I, I pulled that one out of the glitch in the Matrix subreddit, and I love that. And I, I also, it, that kind of thing wrecks me. You know, the, the idea of being able to communicate with your past self or, or even seeing your past. And for, I don't know why, something about that just breaks me. Yeah. I think it's because a lot of us have troubled younger parts of our lives where we think that it's gonna, it's tough, it's awful, we don't fit in, we don't feel where we are. And yet we get to a point in our lives where we look back and think, if only I'd known it was going to be all right, I would have probably been able to deal with things a bit stronger. But then you think it's that paradox, isn't it? That as with anything, when it comes to doppelgangers or, or time travel, is it that kernel of, of knowledge that you may impart to your younger self or, or something completely then changes your entire path of your life? And you don't end up where you're supposed to be 30 years down the line because you've got this, it's going to be better and therefore it takes you in a completely different path. And I think 
it's a difficult thing to deal with regret and grief and loss and have an opportunity to to do something because we think it has to be a positive thing. But I'm also very aware of the difficulty and the danger that having that option can be and what it could possibly do and where you may end up. So it's a, it's a double-edged sword, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think about that sometimes, you know, I think like one of the questions I had written down to ask you here, and, and we'll, we'll get around to it because I'm, I'm very curious, but sometimes I, I ask myself, if I could go back and tell myself anything, you know, at a different point in my life, what, what would I say? And, and like you say, you wonder if you had that opportunity, would it change things? Or, you know, <laughs> I sort of imagine like either, yeah, telling my conscious self or, or telling, um, like a sleeping version of myself, you know, what, what, yeah, like, but maybe, maybe that is a thing, right? Maybe that would be the thing that lets you hang on, you know, this, this, just this lingering impression that, that maybe it's going to be okay. You know, like, I, I don't know if I ever told you about this. This is you know, kind of personal, but fuck it, whatever. I, so I, one of my earliest nightmares was, uh, cause obviously as, as you know, you know, we both have non-existent relationships with our fathers. You know, my dad was a drug addict. He hadn't been in my life for decades before I found out that he was dead last year. So, you know, not close. But when I was a kid, I had this nightmare that he left me behind on a street corner at nighttime. And I still, probably my earliest, my second earliest nightmare. And I'll never, you know, I'll never forget it. And I tried a thing when I, when I first started doing therapy in 2021, early 2022, I tried a thing and it was, it was crazy. Uh, And I actually talked to my therapist about it later. She said she felt like I almost self-hypnotized. But I did a visualization. I imagined going back to that version of me sitting on the street co- or standing on the street corner at night, this little boy all alone. And I envisioned taking him by the hand and walking him home and answering his questions as I walked him to the house. And I imagined the entire walk, because obviously, it, you know, where my father left me in the dream was a real place. Like it was a real part of town. So I imagined every step, you know, walking this little kid back to my room or back, back home. And I walked him inside and then I kind of ended the visualization. I sort of woke myself up and it was fascinating because I really felt better afterwards. And again, I, I approached my therapist about this afterwards and I kind of described it. And she said, it sounds like he sort of self-hypnotized. She said, which I didn't realize a thing people could do, but, and it was just, it was a really useful exercise. And it was kind of like, obviously you can't actually go back and tell your past self, but it was, it felt like this really kind of yeah, like he, I don't know, like a healing way of, of kind of doing that without being able to actually do that. Hmm. Interesting concept. I've never heard of that before. It's always like a joke that you could hypnotize yourself in the mirror and say, I will stop smoking. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what I'd do. That's, that, that's what I'd do. If I went back and said, whatever you do, when that girl, oh yeah, oh yeah, fancy says, would you like a cigarette? Tell her to fuck off. Uh, oh, okay. That's how you got started, eh? Yes. Yes. I used to be a, a devout anti-smoker. My mum used to have to hide her cigarettes because I'd rip them up or throw them on the fire. Oh, Jesus. And then, you know, 10 years later, I'm puffing away because I've got the hearts for a girl. Of course. A dickhead. <laughs> the things we do for love. <sighs> One of many things I should never have done in that four-year period. Should have been... <laughs> She's another one that's, another one that's moved abroad. I bet she has. <laughs> She's on a farm upstate with all the other Paul's girlfriends. <laughs> the Cowboy. When I was roughly 18 years old, 
and spent a lot of time at my best friend's house in the suburbs of Toronto. One night, a group of us were heading out to the bar after drinking at the house. My best friend and I had been there most of the day. At around 10pm, we all piled into my friend's Pontiac Sunfire. I was in the passenger seat, my girlfriend was driving, and three people were in the back. The front of the house was mostly windows, including some blurred glass on the door. As we were backing out, I looked up and watched a dark, featureless man, in what looked like to be a cowboy hat, walk from the left of the house, coming from where the stairs to the basement were, to the front door, only to disappear before the windows to the den. There was maybe four feet of wall before the next window, and he was just gone. At first I was stunned, but I managed to say, Did anyone else see? Without missing a beat, the girl sitting in the middle seat behind me said, The man in the cowboy hat. I was amazed. When someone uses the expression, looks like you've seen a ghost, that was the look on her face. Like a mixture of fear and excitement, just enough to make you nauseous. My best friend seemed less surprised. It was a family house and the property went back for generations. There was a chandelier above the basement stairs that his father told us dated back from a few hundred years ago and was converted into electricity a long time ago. The area the man came from was with the basement stairs, only we realised after we saw him that there was no way he could have been walking where he was walking, as there were stairs, and his height didn't change. After a few minutes of trepidation, we all went back into the house together. We searched everywhere for the man, and I mean everywhere. If there was a man living in the walls, we needed to find out. All the doors were closed and locked, all the windows were closed and locked, and there was nobody else there. To this day, I have zero doubt that we saw some sort of paranormal entity. My best friend mentioned his grandfather, and we did ask his dad, but we still don't know for sure who or what it was. The fact that the two of us saw the exact same thing at the exact same time made it extraordinary and made me feel less crazy. I mean, I figure if someone's going to be living in your walls, Paul, it would make sense they have a cowboy hat. Well, yeah, and it's it's nice to see that they're not wearing the usual fedora. Oh, I never even thought of that. Oh, yeah, that is a change. So, yeah, it's it's not just a hat man. It's, again, it's just a, just a hillbilly living in your walls, which I don't know if that's better. <laughs> there used to be this truck stop I like to go to on my way home to Revelstoke. It was just outside the town of Hope, and it was uh, it was a husky house which is a, a chain of, of truck stops, which are, I think are rapidly disappearing. But I used to love stopping there for lunch because it was an old school diner. You know, it, it had the, the counter, the counter and the booths and the stools and the television was always playing mash no matter what time of day it was. <laughs> and, uh, I, I took Nick there once. I really wanted to show her and she does not have the enthusiasm for the lower places that I do. So I don't know why I keep taking her to these places, but I, it's just, I can't help it. I'm, I get enthusiastic about something. I want to share it. And then later I'll realize, oh, this is not your thing. Well, my enthusiasm is my enthusiasm, so I'm sorry. Yeah. I like a, I like a pub where you have to w- wipe your feet when you leave. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like that. Mm. You can try and figure out which prison your cook went to. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the kind of, when you turn up at the door and the bouncer says, have you got any weapons? And you go, no. He said, right, take one then. <laughs> <laughs> so you are not nearly well armed enough for this bar. <laughs> Here's a pull cue. Have fun. (laughs) You know, you just want to snap that over your legs. 
And uh, there we go. Now you're set. Yorkshire nunchucks. So we, I took Nick to this place once. And again, she was, she was not a fan. And uh, I left her at the table. I had to go to the bathroom. And I come back, and this old truck driver was already hitting on her. It was, I was gone seconds. And he was this old, tall, skinny, he looked like Lurch. And he had this gross old cowboy hat on. And so I just, reading that story, I just kind of imagined that's who was living in that guy's walls, was this weird old man from the truck stop. And, and Nick never let me forget it. She's like, you left me alone with the serial killers. I'm sure he's not a serial killer. He's just a very lonely old man. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, Truck I'm not drivers. saying he wasn't. He probably wasn't. Mm. Mm. It would have been good if he looked a bit like Lurch that his chat-up line to, to Nick would have been, you rang. <laughs> I don't think he was that suave. I think it was more like, what are you doing out here alone by yourself? <laughs> <laughs> Knives on the windowsill. So this happened about five years ago in an apartment where I lived with my then-boyfriend, Chris, just outside of Toronto's Chinatown. We lived above an herbal store with a single ground-floor entrance, downstairs, next to the store's entrance. It was your typical unit-on-top-of-a-storefront type of entrance. The main entrance was to be locked at all times, and our landlord was super anal about that. The back door to our unit, we had a little rooftop area, which was also the fire exit, had a double door for extra security. The stairs leading to our unit were very steep and narrow, and there were at least 30 of them. The first set of about 25 stairs were just straight up. Then you would hit a little platform and have to go down five steps, then another mini hallway. Now, stay with me. I know that's a lot of info, but it's really important. I want you to take away from this that it takes several minutes to get into my unit, especially if you're entering through the back. In order to access our fire exit slash back door from outside, you have to walk five minutes down the street to an alleyway entrance. It's a typical Toronto alleyway with private parking spaces. So I got home on this night around 2.45 in the morning after a bonfire with my cousin. There was no drinking or anything like that. We were just hanging out. Once I got back and cleaned up, Chris and I were then just laying in bed, chilling and talking. Now, I should say that before this event, nothing had ever happened, and we'd lived there for about seven months. Chris decided to go to the washroom before falling asleep. The washroom was right beside the unit entrance, which was the opposite side of our bedroom. The whole unit was like 750 square feet, so not very big at all, and it was open concept except for the washroom and bedroom. All of a sudden, I didn't hear him walking to the washroom anymore. He'd gone silent. I got up and looked outside my bedroom door to find Chris, and I saw him just standing there, staring at the entrance. I remember feeling so confused until I looked at the entrance too. All I saw was the handle on the door violently shaking, like something was trying to break in, and I was terrified because I thought it was a burglar or something. But then I was like, how? The main door to the building is locked. I thought it had to have been a sick joke, so I went to the kitchen, which was steps away from the entrance, and grabbed two of my biggest knives. Chris was still standing there, absolutely terrified and in shock. And I risked it. I opened the door and nothing. Like, not a fucking cricket. I was like, WTF, and I ran up those five steps to the mini platform to check if some fucker was hiding there, but still nothing. I looked down the 25 stairs leading to the building entrance, which is the only way you can get in, and not a soul in sight. Now I was really scared. What do you do in this situation? I just couldn't comprehend. Then I heard loud footsteps on my rooftop, but saw nothing through my skylights. 
Within 30 seconds, something was banging on my back door slash fire exit. Now, it takes at least three minutes to get there, and that's if you're running. At this point, I still thought there was a chance someone was just messing with me, so I ran to my bedroom where the back door slash fire exit was located and looked out my window. The window's right beside the back entrance, and yet again, I saw no one. Chris and I were practically ready to cry, and we sat there almost until the morning, exhausted. We finally gave up, realizing that no one was coming, or if they were there, they'd been gone, and we went to bed, leaving the knives on our windowsill. To this day, I have no idea what it was. There's something about that aggressively trying to get into your place that mm. just freaks me out. Yeah. I mean, obviously it's scary because someone's trying to get into your house, but there's something, I don't know, that's such a, an eagerness, you know? Yeah. I'm aware there's a couple of, and I thought it was quite odd, that the only haunted place that I'm aware of in Toronto's Chinatown is the old Swai Kwayang restaurant, or however you okay, pronounce yeah. it. Probably Sequan, I think. Yeah, it's supposed to be cursed, wasn't it? Yeah, that's well. It's funny you say that because that I, that was the the listing I found too. It was it's at uh, three forty six Spadina in Chinatown, and I, I found a reference to it on Reddit. And basically, yeah, it's believed cursed, and uh, apparently, just it's very much a part of the local lore. People, you know, some folks would never go in there because they said that the the Feng Shui <laughs> had I, I like trapped something in there. Mm. Uh, oh, no, sorry, I have the note here. Believed cursed as well as haunted, the restaurant remained closed for many years. However, before giving up, the company had a traditional Chinese exorcist called in who pointed out that the two billboards directly across the street pointed like an arrowhead directly at the restaurant, which allowed a natural flow of evil spirits easy access to the building. Yeah. Like I said, one of those things that you'll traditionally see, uh, Chinese restaurants have a lot of mirrors in them, which is often to deflect spirits away or to, oh, they get lost. They can't find a way is the general consensus. I didn't realize that. I had no idea that was why the, why these places had so many mirrors. Mm. To bring good luck, protect the, protect the place. Interesting. To me, I don't think it was probably haunted. It was, it was clearly that uh, they had some Zhang Shi living in the basement. I hope so. That's way more, that's way cooler. <laughs> I got to tell you, man, I don't know. I, 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 uh, I looked up what that building looks like now mm. versus what it used to look like. And I, I sure hope there's hopping vampires downstairs because <laughs> they've otherwise stripped the character right the fuck out of that building. Oh. Folks, if, if you want to look it up, it's, they say, 346 Spadina Avenue in, in uh, Toronto. Go back to 2016. You'll see what the building used to look like. Very cool, very ornate yellow building. Now it is this soulless, modern, concrete nonsense. It's just soulless. There's nothing interesting about it whatsoever. So again, adding hopping vampires could only improve the place. <laughs> well, this is my, my favorite Chinese restaurant in Sheffield, unfortunately, didn't make it through the pandemic, but um, I, never, I never felt scared when I was there. I feel like the best Chinese places should scare you a little bit. <laughs> How much sodium am I putting in my body right now? <laughs> When we go back to, uh, to the UK uh, in September, obviously we're staying with Nick's mom in Clevedon, and there's a restaurant there we both love. They make these amazing crispy duck pancakes. Mm. And uh, I, I haven't had Chinese food in ages, but this is real, like, that's really high end. It's really nice stuff. I'm used to more, you know. And it, of course, it bears no resemblance to what is actually eaten in China. We're talking about Western Chinese food. Um, but um, yeah, so it should scare you a little bit. Again, if, if, if you don't, if you can't hear Hell's Choir, singing in your ears as your blood vessels constrict from the sodium, 
Have you really had a great meal? Fernway. All right, this is going to sound absolutely bonkers and unbelievable. But then again, if we could physically prove anything we share online, then we would all be a lot more interesting. This past Thanksgiving weekend, I drove from Toronto to New York City via Niagara Falls with two other people. After we successfully crossed the border, the map app redirected us to take surface streets. As I was driving through a town, a really strong feeling of nostalgia hit me. A feeling like I had been there before. As we were driving, I recognised landmarks that I had never ever seen before in my life. It was such a surreal feeling. One of the people travelling with me woke up and asked what town we were in, and I answered immediately. Yet right now I can't remember the name of the town at all. What stands out was the weather though. When she asked me that, all I remember from that moment was looking around and it all seemed sort of disordered. Like a grey sepia filter with colour on a rainy day, if that makes sense. What absolutely fucked with my mind was the people on the street corner we came across. We stopped at a stop sign and I was waiting for people to cross. One of them looked at me and gave me the It's you look. She tapped the person she was with and he gave me the same look. I saw him keep looking as I was driving away. Oddly enough, I felt I'd seen those two before, though the further I drove away from them, the less of the feeling I got. In fact, after leaving the town, my entire feeling of nostalgia and familiarity left me as quickly as it came. When we drove back, we didn't go through that town again. Not from lack of trying either, because I would love to remember the name of the town and maybe get out to try and figure out just what's going on. And I really wanted to end on that one because it's such a note of mystery mm. and really calls back to that listener email from Talk, the most recent Talk Spooky show. Mm. You know, she has this, she's realizing she has this connection to West Virginia, which is not somewhere she's been. Yeah. And of course, I have my own connection to Pennsylvania. And so I, I very keenly understand this, this feeling of, yeah, longing and belonging in somewhere you, you've never been. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I had that. That's why I moved to Sheffield. As soon as I felt, as soon as I arrived here, I felt that I belonged here. That, I find that fascinating. And, and it, it makes sense. And I, I've said this before, I'm kind of joking, but I mean it. I, I had forgotten that you weren't originally from Sheffield because mm. it seems like such a natural fit for you. Mm. It's weird. I just felt complete when I arrived here. Yeah. Well, really Los Angeles is a place where I kind of feel like that, which is weird because, you know, Los Angeles is a hard place to, uh, hard place to make a living. And I think a lot of folks go there, you know, with the expectation of being in the entertainment industry, things like that. But I just have this calm when I'm there that I don't seem to have anywhere else. And uh, it's hard to explain. Obviously, I have this connection to Pennsylvania, and I feel home there, but I don't feel like I want to stay there. It, it's hard to explain. And again, I haven't been to Pennsylvania in years, whereas I've been to LA uh, far more than I've been to Pennsylvania, actually. But yeah, there's something about the place. I don't know. I mean, we're, we're trying to narrow down uh, through genealogy where my, my dad's family's from. Uh, sorry, my, where my, my granddad's family's from, because my mother's father was adopted. We don't know much about, or we don't know anything about where he's from. But it does interestingly seem like there are some connections to, uh, to the Southern California. So it might just be like old, old genetic programming. It's, it's hard to say. Mm. Maybe you're distantly related to Zorro. I didn't get the agility genes. <laughs> but you do look good in black. I do look good in black. That's true. Yep. I do like a little bit of mask stuff. So, you know, that's... 
Just kidding, folks. I'm just kidding. Welcome to Eyes Wide Shut with Brian Paul. <laughs> All right, folks. Well, that's going to bring to a close our look at the stranger side of Toronto, Canada. We hope you've enjoyed it. We've certainly enjoyed sharing it with you. If you've got a story to share or you know a, a, a part of Toronto lore that you'd like us to know about, send us an email at ghoststoryguys at gmail.com and we will read it out on one of our Talk Spooky mini shows. And those come out every other week. So this week you get uh, episode 166. Next week you get Talk Spooky, probably number seven, I think it is. So again, that's ghoststoryguys at gmail.com. Let us know. What did we miss? I know we didn't even get a chance to talk about the Cabbage Town monster. Oh. We might have to do that on Talk Spooky. Yeah. I know, right? They would just... Uh, the time flew past. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hey there, listeners. Before you reach for that skip 15 seconds ahead button, I promise you this isn't an ad. We wanted to take a minute to talk to you about mental health. On this show, I've always tried to be as honest and open as possible about my struggles with depression and anxiety, because even though we've come a long way towards acknowledging the very real damage these things can do, there is still way too much lingering stigma about reaching out for help. And when you start to feel like there's no help, it's easy to start feeling like there's no hope. But Paul has joined me today to remind you there is always hope and there's always help. We're not going to try and talk you out of self-harming right now because we know that's not how it works. Instead, what we wanted to do was tell you something now and hope that should things get bad, you'll remember it and make a phone call or send a text message before you make any permanent decisions. As someone who knows all too well just how important mental health can be, it's never too late to reach out. In Canada, the number to call is 133-456-4566. In the USA, the new number to call is 988. That's 988. In the UK, the number to call is 116-123 or text SHOUT. That's S-H-O-U-T. To 85258. In Australia, the number to call is 131114. However bad shit seems, it will pass. And no matter what your brain might be telling you at any given moment, and believe me when I say I know this intimately, there are people who love you and people who care deeply about how you treat yourself. Should a time come when you find yourself despairing, Please know that we've both been where you are, and there is a way back to the world. Take care. Welcome back. As always, thanks to Luke, Sarah, Anthony, Joseph, and everyone else who's part of the Ghost Story Guys family. Don't forget to check out Luke's podcast, Luke Lore, available everywhere fine podcasts live. And of course, Joseph's YouTube show, The Cardinal Rule, which is, of course, about Arizona Cardinals football. And of course, thank you, my friend and co-host, the inimitable the one, the only, the paranormal Johnny Carson himself, host of Mysteries and Monsters, Mr. Paul Bestel. Paul, what's coming up on Eminem? Yeah, so this week, coming up, I have the return, triumphantly, of our good friend Chad Lewis, who takes me on a road trip around Wisconsin some 
haunted sites around the state and uh, we dive into something I was never aware of which is are these strange stories of ghost elephants that, <laughs> that seem to pop up there um, which are very interesting okay. tragic stories but um, the origin stories but there's, there's more than one alleged ghost elephant in Wisconsin which I found fascinating because I've not come across a pachyderm ghost before so it was um, very interesting to to read about those and a couple of strange ghostly bridges and things and um, yeah we, we touch on some of the more unusual hauntings in that and then the following week I am joined by the author and experiencer Antoinette Shippers who many people may know from her appearances on Jim Harold's Campfire which included the course legendary Roadhouse story and we have a a nice chat about her haunted house and um, the terrifying things that seem to afflict her father. And um, I've never heard of a of a haunting that affects somebody in such a manner. And it's one of the few reports that I've heard from someone where I actually got the chills reading one of the reports. Oh, wow. Of something, because something seemed to take over her father, but it wasn't a demon. It was just a nasty ghost. And, uh, yeah, it's... Uh, a very challenging set of experiences that went through. So we talk about all that and, and uh, plenty of other ghostly things in between. Very cool. And where can everyone find you online? You can find Mysteries and Monsters across all social media platforms, including this newfangled thingy-me-jig called Threads, and also on mysteriesandmonsters.com. Fabulous. I'm on Twitter, Instagram, Blue Sky, and Threads. That's <laughs> largely the truth. Too many, too many. And you can find my other podcast, Weird Together, on podcast platforms everywhere or linked in the show notes. And that is a show about independent horror films, co-hosted with Joseph Camo from, of course, from The Cardinal Rule. On this episode, just came out, we're talking about the film Brooklyn 45, set at the end of the Second World War, about a seance that goes very wrong. It's kind of like a paranormal chamber drama. It's really, really good. Gives us a great jumping off point to talk about a lot of different shit, grief, loss, all kinds of very, very uplifting uh, topics, as you can tell. Really good conversation. And again, you can find that everywhere fine podcasts live. It's called Weird Together. As we said at the top, this show exists because of our patrons and now our Apple Podcast subscribers. If you'd like to join the team, head to patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys. That's patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys, or subscribe via your Apple Podcasts app. That gets you early ad-free access to all new shows, plus a bonus show with every main episode. So again, for episode 166, our subscribers will get an extra conversation between me and Paul that was anywhere up to an hour long. And that's just random chit-chat, paranormal and otherwise. It's a ton of fun. There's also live shows, stickers, all kinds of cool rewards. And again, you can find all of that at patreon.com slash ghoststoryguys or by signing up for GSG Premium via Apple Podcasts. Do you have any spots coming up, Paul? So, I'll be shortly joining the organisers of Paramete, who are running a series of conversations with some of the upcoming speakers, and that should be out in the next ah. week or so. So it probably will be out when this hits as well, because I'm doing it next Thursday afternoon. Very cool. Well, we'll keep an eye out on our social media for that. We'll post it on our website, ghoststoryguys.com, and we'll also put it on the Facebook page and, and all those places. If you want to pick up some Ghost Story Guys merch, head to our website at ghoststoryguys.com. You can get all kinds of cool stuff there. You can get t-shirts, mugs, stickers, everything your little heart desires. 
And if you'd like to support the show, but you don't want to get involved with Patreon or Apple Podcasts, you can also give one-time donations there at ghoststoryguys.com. Shout out to our composer, Jerry Smith. Jerry is, as we always say, a film journalist and musician based out of Central California. The debut single of his latest project, Street Witch, is available on streaming platforms everywhere. The song is called Debut. And the full EP, which is three tracks, will be out uh, probably in about a week after this show. And again, you'll find Street Witch streaming on all major music platforms, courtesy of Night Harvest Recordings, which is a Ghost Story Guys house label. And you can find Jerry's other stuff under Rainy Days for Ghosts. Our theme song, Radio, Into the Darkness We Go, is composed and performed by Peter Kursov of Pizanta Music. Find more from Peter by searching for Pizanta Music wherever you get your tunes or by going to nightharvestrecordings.com. And I guess that's going to do it. We'll be back in two weeks, but until then... Into the darkness we go. Well, I was going to say, it sounds like the uh, bat phone ringing in Jeffrey Epstein's cave. But... <laughs> you can tell I used to get stoned a lot in the 90s. <laughs> in the 90s. <laughs> well, you know, the plans me and Theo come up with on a night are not to be shared as yet. Oh, yikes. Don't tell them shit, Paul. We'll show them. We'll show them all. <laughs> I've got a picture of you wielding the Thor hammer open in Photoshop in this window, and I keep forgetting to save it. So every time I, I open it, I'm like, oh, there's Paul. Why isn't he moving? Nope, that's Photoshop. That's not Riverside. I like a cooked breakfast, right? Bacon and eggs and sausage and whatever. I wouldn't blend it and make it into a fucking smoothie. <laughs> Woof Salini. <laughs> And that's how we blew out the last 45 minutes trying to think of dog puns. <laughs> Dogs and totalitarian leaders. What's your favorite? And go. Have you got a dog that looks like Pol Pot? Let us know. <laughs> it's actually just Pol Pot hiding. Woof. <laughs> it's like chicken boo. Do you remember, do you ever watch Animaniacs? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> he's wearing a disguise to look like other guys, but he's not a dog. He's really Pol Pot. <laughs> Now I've got the cat at my door. One sec. <laughs> and what do they say? Can I help you? It's like we're doing the show with Steve fucking Irwin oh, tonight. Oh, God.